Good morning, everybody. Sunday special edition, coming to believe through action. Oh my gosh, what a fantastic lead-in. Any link, moving those action muscles. The power of the Big Book Convention is fast approaching. November 15th, 16th, and 17th, 2019, at the Liberty International Airport Marriott Hotel. Got some details for you. 68 days until the lights go down and the power ignites and explodes. Can't you just hear that thunder roaring? 68 days, ladies and gentlemen. The deadline for registration is sooner than that. That's Thursday, October 24th, 2019. That's 47 days away. Then it stops. Don't miss it. And also, check out the bulletin board on our website. Several people have rooms to share. They're looking for folks to room with them. Some have nobody in their room and want somebody. Some have no rooms and need a room. They're all trying to hook up together here. There's also folks that are looking for ride, and I also saw that somebody has an automobile that'll bring you to the group. So don't miss it. Check out that website for any of your needs. Also, I wanted to let you know, almost 500 people have already registered. Think about it. That is 500 big, bold, enthusiastic for recovery fellows ablaze with glory and recovery in one place. Can't you just feel it? Oh my gosh, I'm, my blood is just pumping here. 500 and counting. See the light in our eyes and the glow in our faces. It's simply jaw-dropping, electric, and miraculous. We think of it as the biggest pajama party in the world. Sleep, who sleeps? We're up all day and up through the night. It's the best, best of the best jam happening in that area of the world. So here you go. You are cordially invited to join all of us as the highlights and the high recovery abounds in that particular place. It's all that the big book has to promise. And it's right before your eyes. Sign up so you have no regrets. It only happens every other year. Register this minute. We won't tell, even while the Sunday Special Edition is going. Here's the web address that has all the details for you. www.avisionforyou.info. And that's the number four on that line up there. Are you having trouble registering? Don't let that stop you. There's names and contact information on that website to help you get connected or call anybody that you hear on the line. Don't let anything stand in your way. Besides, if it's a block, we got a step for you to handle that kind of block. Thank you for registering. It will not disappoint you. And now, a vision for a vision for you presents the Sunday special edition, coming to believe through action. Hey, Leah. Hey, Mel. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of a vision for you. Today is Sunday, September eighth, two thousand and nineteen. The share ID numbers for Friday, September 6th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,367. That's 13367. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,369. That's 13369. This morning, A Vision for You presents Coming to Believe Through Action. Step 2 states came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The second step is about hope, a higher power, and dealing with reality. It follows logically from the first. In step one, 
we admitted our powerlessness over food and the unmanageability of our lives. We surrendered and gave up. With that sense of surrender came feelings of fear and hopelessness. If we were powerless over our problem, how could we ever solve it? Lack of power, that was our dilemma. In step two, we are given the solution. Our situation is not hopeless, far from it. There is hope, but that hope lies outside ourselves. Yes, we have to cooperate with that grace. Yes, we have to have a willingness to apply these 12 steps. As the big book says, we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. But where and how were we to find this power? In step two, we begin that search, an undertaking that will lead us through the remainder of the 12 steps. In the second step, we discover that our situation is indeed not hopeless. With us today to speak on step two is Harlan G., a recovered compulsive overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous and a vision for you, carrying the message of depth and weight near and far, and he is a beloved member of this group, and with that, great appreciation and love, we welcome Harlan. Good morning, Harlan. Oh, thank you so much, Leah. Your words are too kind. Thank you so much. Um, I'm honored to be here. I am Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona. Long time before I came to live in Scottsdale, Arizona, which I consider to be paradise, I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. And when I was a little boy growing up in Chicago, I was very, very um, troubled by this idea of God. And what I was troubled by very specifically was I went to synagogue. I am Jewish. I went to synagogue, and I went to Hebrew school as a young child like all my friends did. But there was something about measuring up to what I thought God wanted from me that I had trouble with. And there was one prevailing idea that I had, and that is I couldn't measure up. And it seemed to me that from a very early age on, God wasn't delivering on anything I wanted from him. I wanted young parents and I had old parents. My dad was 54 years old when I was born, and he was 60 by the time I entered kindergarten at five years old, 59, 60 years old. My mom was 40 when I entered kindergarten. She was 36 when I was born. And I wanted American parents, and my dad was from Europe, and my dad came here uh, around the era of, of the beginning of World War I. He was the product of mass murder, mass uh, uh, genocide, mass hatred uh, of our people in Russia and Poland, and he witnessed the murders of his family, and he was horribly traumatized by all this. And my dad was very angry at God, and I'm growing up in this, and my dad is, is constantly bitter at God. My dad is constantly angry about what happened, 
and he never really questioned very much that his family was massacred. Forty people were obliterated off the face of the earth from ages just a few months old to his parents, his aunts, uncles, his grandparents on both sides who lived in that village in Russia, and every one of them was obliterated off the face of the earth except for him. And he never questioned that they were killed. He questioned constantly why he was allowed to live. And he had tremendous, tremendous survivor guilt. My mother was American, uh, but we tried to appease him. We would try to, to assuage him. He grew up, I grew up with a father who was very, very scared of the world. He had seen the ugliest side of it. And he saw that people did do horrible things. And I'm growing up in this. And I'm going to Hebrew school and I'm praying in a language that I did not speak nor understand. And I was just muttering sounds. It just sounds to me, it just seemed to me that I was muttering sounds that really had no meaning to me. And it just seemed like I could never make the grade. I was just never enough for God. And I thought that the reason was because I was fat. Because that's what everyone told me. From the time I was three, four years old, people would say to me, if you didn't eat so much, everything would be wonderful. If you didn't eat so much and you weren't so fat, everything would be fantastic. So I did what children do. I started to believe what everyone told me. I started to believe that they were right and that existentially I was not only wrong, but I was some sort of a violation. I was some sort of violation because I was so fat and that if I wasn't so fat, then maybe John F. Kennedy wouldn't have been assassinated. If I wasn't so fat, maybe the Cubs would win the World Series every year. If I wasn't so fat, maybe my dad wouldn't have gotten a flat tire. Whatever you want to fill in the blank, the sentence began with, if Harlan didn't eat so much and Harlan wasn't so fat, then you can fill in the blank. Something wonderful would happen. And I started to also believe at the time that I was about five, six, seven years old, that God hated me. See, I believed that there was a God. I believed what they taught me in Hebrew school, that there was a God, and he parted the Red Sea, and he made the burning bush, and he freed us from Egypt, and he did all these wonderful things, and he was very much alive in the lives of the kids that I went to school with. They had young parents and they had brothers and sisters and they had aunts and uncles and cousins and relatives and this and that. And I had none of those things. And everything in their house, everything in their life didn't seem to be a disaster because my dad never really made much of a living. He wasn't a very good businessman. And that put a lot of stress on the family. A flat tire had the same horrible consequences as a diagnosis of cancer or whatever that might be. Not really, not in reality, of course, but in our household. Everything was a catastrophe. So as my sponsor, John Kay, John Kay lives in Los Angeles, and he's a wonderful guy, and he talks to me all the time about 
cognitive distortion. And one of my cognitive distortions is catastrophization, black and white thinking. But this catastrophizing thing, this became ingrained in me as a child. And so I believe that there was a God, but that God somehow was out to get me because I was so fat. And as my life started spinning out of control, as I got fatter and fatter and fatter, and as I started entering into my teenage years, as I started puberty, as I started growing up, these things became worse and worse in my life because my friends were going away to school and I had to stay home because I became the head of the house when I was a little kid. My dad was old. My dad was sick. My mom was mentally ill. My mom was sick. My mom was not only sick mentally, she had three distinct personalities, my mother. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic one minute, and she could breathe in air, and she could be a three-year-old. And she would be a three-year-old for a while, and then she'd breathe in air, and then she'd be a pretty normal person. And then she'd breathe in air, and then she'd be a screaming, raving lunatic again. And I'm growing up in this. And there'd be a holiday. There'd be like a Jewish holiday. And everybody would be going to synagogue, including me and my dad, including my, my mom sometimes too. And we'd be going and my dad would spin on the sidewalk and he'd go, Puh, where were you? Puh, where were you? Puh, where were you? And he'd be spinning on the sidewalk and he'd be angry. And this was my dad. And this is how I learned this attitude. I learned from the master. And my mother, who was mentally ill, she tried to convince me at a very early age, you can't live like him. You can't think like him, him being my dad, and have a good life. You have to take an opposite approach, she'd say to me, but it took me years to believe her. And what she would tell me is she would teach me from a very early age on that all people are basically good. You can't live your life like your father. And she'd say to me at a very early age, you take a black man and a white man and a Jewish man and a Protestant man and a Catholic man and an Oriental man and you put them in Lake Michigan and they will be equally wet. But it took me a long time to understand what she was trying to teach me. A long time, longer than I care to admit. And what happened was I started to embrace this idea that my father and mother exemplified for me, and that is death would be better. I got this from my dad, and then later I got it from my mom too because my mom was deathly ill physically as well. She suffered the ravages of compulsive overeating, and she died of our disease. My mother was an amputee from diabetes at, at the last of her life. She was 100 units of insulin a day diabetic who ate total, who ate complete kitchens out, but she always did it in secret. You would never see her eat. She'd wake us out, and when we would fall asleep, she would go in and eat massive quantities of food. She ate little or nothing in front of others, and when we were asleep, she would just eat the kitchen. My dad was also a compulsive overeater and a smoker. 
and one after the other smoker, absolutely one after the other. And God became an adversary in my heart. He became an adversary because it never seemed to me that I could make the grade. It never seemed to me that things went my way and I became jealous and I became angry and I became full of self-pity and I became full of rage. And I blamed God. Because if God loved me, I'd be thin. If God loved me, I'd have brothers and sisters and wealth and this and that. And it just never seemed to come my way. What I did not understand at any level is that nobody, no matter what their outward appearances may be, nobody gets all their wishes. God is not the tooth fairy. He's not the Easter bunny, Santa Claus. God knows what. He's not those things. And what was lost on me, what was lost on me completely is that I had parents who did love me. I had a roof over my head. Lord knows I had food on the table. I had medical care. I lived in a great neighborhood. I had wonderful friends. I had friends who were supportive. I had friends whose parents were supportive. I had friends whose parents rallied around me when my own parents died. When I was 22, my mother died. When I was 24, my father died. After long, destructive illnesses, death became a merciful end to their lives. My mother died of her diabetes, and my father died of lung cancer from the smoking. Death was a welcome end to their suffering. But I was 24 years old and on my own, and life was passing me by as if I was going backwards on Lakeshore Drive, and everybody was just zooming by me. And I didn't know where to turn, so I turned to the food. And I didn't know what to do because I didn't expect to live very long because everyone kept telling me, you're not going to live very long. And I said to myself, not to them, because if I said it to them, they would just get angry. So I stopped. I said to myself, good, I hope it comes today because I didn't know how to live in this world with the food and I didn't know how to live in this world without the food. I had tried many diets, many times. I had been dieting from the time I was six and seven years old. When I was nine years old, I was put on amphetamines. I was put on diet pills. This was the magic cure, the pink diet pill from the doctor three times a day. Oh, those pills cut my appetite, but boy, they devastated me. I can still feel the temples of my head going ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And you sleep about 15, 20 minutes a month, but you don't eat. Oh, boy, does it kill your appetite. But when you come down off those pills, you'll eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. I remember saying the same. I get accused of this now. I remember saying the same thing again and again and again, and I couldn't stop myself. I had motor mouth, but I couldn't hear most of what was being said to me because I was trying to think of a response and my head was so speedy, I couldn't absorb what anyone was telling me. And I remember very distinctly. Now, 
I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter. I'm not a fist fighter. I'm getting in fist fights at school on these pills. I'm getting in fist fights. I'm getting in trouble for the only time in my life. I was a pretty good kid. And then when I got to be, but I lost weight. Oh, I lost weight beautifully. But when I got to be about 10, this would be 1964, I was born in 54, so you don't have to do the math. I'm 65 years old today. I'm not, today's not my birthday. I'm 65 years old right now. Uh, when I got to be 10 years old, 1964, I was put on different pills, but the same effect. And some of the information started coming out of Los Angeles uh, when Marilyn Monroe died <clears throat> and when a couple of these other uh, uh, people died. It, it started coming out that these diet pills, these amphetamines, might not be quite the magical answer to a weight problem than was originally thought. And they started thinking that possibly these, these pills might not be so great after all. They may not be the magical cure that we had been looking for. So the bottom line is, is that I was taken off the pills. And, of course, when I did, when I was taken off the pills, the weight came back very, very quickly. It just didn't. It, it didn't stay off because, of course, I couldn't maintain. I couldn't maintain my uh, my my diet. I couldn't maintain that that way of living. Thank God. And so I'm. I became an adult. In the sense chronologically, but I never became an adult in my heart. I never matured. It is said that one's maturity level stops at the time that they pick up their addiction. And I picked up this addiction as an infant. I picked up this addiction as a zero-year-old. And so I never was able to mature at any level. I knew that I could not believe in God. And I knew that I could not believe in myself. I knew not to trust me because I had lied to myself. I had disappointed myself. I had never been the kind of friend to myself that I wanted. I, it didn't seem to me that I had much of a life, and so I didn't want to live it. Now, I came into Overeaters Anonymous right after my dad died. My dad died in November of 1978. And in 1979, in January, late January of 1979, someone who I'm still very, very dear friends with, very close to today, someone gave me an explanation of what Overeaters Anonymous was. And the minute I heard this God thing, mentally I checked out. I checked out immediately because I wanted nothing to do with the God thing. I never felt comfortable in the synagogue. I never felt comfortable because my Hebrew was not good. I never felt comfortable because I knew I wasn't observing to the level that others were observing to. And I knew that I was lacking. I knew that I was just not making the grade. And so if I, don't, if I can't win, I don't want to play. That's just how my mentality has been from the time I was a little kid. If I can't win the game, I really don't know. I don't want to play. And today that negatively affects me as well. I have to overcome that 
And the only way I can overcome that, ironically, is through God, is through faith. We'll get to that in a little bit. We won't get to that right this second. So the minute I step into my first meeting, and the reason I stepped into this first meeting wasn't because I was a fireball of enthusiasm. I wasn't a fireball of willingness. I wasn't a fireball of anything. What I was was guilty because I owed a lot of people a lot of money, and they forced me to go to my first meeting of OA on February the 2nd, 1979, at the Orchard Mental Health Center on Niles Center Road in Skokie, Illinois. And I went to meetings, and I ate my way to the meetings, and I prayed for a Russian airstrike during the meetings, and I would eat my way home. I was angry. I was jealous. Gee, me angry, me jealous, me scared? That doesn't sound like me at all. (laughs) Yes, it does. Because I saw people in those rooms that were affluent. I saw people in those rooms that drove Cadillacs and Lincolns. And I saw people in those rooms that had been to exotic places and wore exotic clothing. And they looked like they had money. What would they be doing here? Because if I had money and I had a fancy car and I had a wife and I had this and I had that, I sure wouldn't compulsively overeat. And the other thing that made me crazy, as if I wasn't crazy enough already, what made me crazy with jealousy and anger and self-pity, me jealous, me angry, me self-pity, pitying? Oh, wow. I don't know where that came from. But anyway, back to our story, was that they, most of them, had almost normal bodies or normal bodies. They didn't present like I did. And when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, I had written thousands and thousands of dollars worth of bad checks. I had done things and lied lied to people that had trusted my dad and, and knew me from the time I was a kid, and I violated them by lying to them and doing things to them that I wouldn't do to, to, to anyone. And I didn't understand what they were doing there. They were 30 years older than me, and I was hundreds and hundreds of pounds heavier than them. And I knew why I was a compulsive overeater, or that I was a compulsive overeater, not, not why. I knew that I was a compulsive overeater, but I didn't understand what you guys were doing there because you guys were seemingly normal bodies. It never occurred to me that you were there because you were going through your own hell with food and, and, and weight and all these other things. Never really occurred to me. And so a journey began. And it was an arduous journey. It was a very tough journey. And one of the things that had to happen on that journey is I was going to have to make peace with God. I was going to have to make peace with God, and I was going to have to do something that I never in a million years imagined could be done. I was going to have to change my perception of what a higher power was. Because I would not be able to recover unless I could accept the fact that there is a power greater than myself and that that power could restore me to sanity. 
Now, today is Sunday, and there are philosophers and authors and poets and theologians, and there are historians, and there are all manner of clergy people from various religions that today and yesterday have philosophized from the pulpit or in their private quarters of who God is and what God is. And for them, that is fantastic. That's fantastic. Let them have at it. Let them do with that as they see fit. For me, there are two things that I need to know about God. Now, there are the two things I need to know about God, and they are enough. They are enough. Genug in Yiddish. That's not the Yiddish word of the day, genug, but it's, one, it, it's a Yiddish word. Genug means enough. And these are the two things. There is a God, and it's not me. There is a God, and it's not me. That's breakthrough for me. That's amazing for me. That's all I need to know. Now, I want to break from my story here, <clears throat> and is my, as is my want, I want to give the history of step two. I want to talk about how step two came into the program, because this is something that helps me, and hopefully it will help you to understand more about step two, maybe, than we did before the podcast started. Let's take a look at what happened. Now, in 1933, April of 33, Bill Wilson is going to go into the town hospital, and he is going to come under the care of Dr. William Duncan Silkworth. And Dr. Silkworth is going to impart some knowledge upon Bill. He's going to tell him He's going to tell him that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it remains, often remains strong in other respects. Bill's incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Bill says, understanding myself now, self-knowledge, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I'm on page seven of the big book. Now, when he says the goose hung high, what he means is prosperity. A goose is a symbol of prosperity. It means things were good. I went to town regularly, even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. He goes on to say, but it was not for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump after a time I returned to the hospital. This would be spring of 1934. This was the finish. The curtain, it seemed to me, my weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end <clears throat> with heart failure during delirium tremens or I would develop a wet brain. What is a wet brain? A wet brain is really a dry brain because alcohol dehydrates the cells and the liver and the brain cannot regenerate themselves. So when you see this wet brain, many of us don't know what that is. Well, it's time we found out. The wet brain is a very serious condition, and what that means is you're going to live in a vegetative state. You're going to have to be institutionalized, and you're going to get up in the morning, and they're going to change your diaper, and they're going to plop you in front of the radio, 
and they're going to change your diaper a couple of more times that morning after serving you breakfast, and then they're going to serve you lunch and change your diaper a few more times, serve you dinner, you're going to sit in front of the radio all day long, you won't know what channel it's on. You won't know anybody that comes to see you. You'll live in a vegetative state. And this is what Lois Wilson is being told is going to happen to her husband. Now, let's understand something here. Lois loved Bill. Now, she was angry at him, yes, for drinking. She was angry at him because he kept getting drunk, and she couldn't understand. If you loved me enough, you wouldn't drink. Does that sound familiar? And she couldn't figure out why when he would drink in the country and they would come to the city, he would drink in the city and they would go to the country and he would drink in the country so they would go to the city and this would go on and on and on and on. And no matter what she did, he just drank. She couldn't figure out that if he really loved her, sorry, if he really loved her, he would. why he didn't stop drinking? Now she's being informed that he is an alcoholic, and at that time there was nothing that could be done for him. And that this is what's going to happen. And that he's going to die. See, at least Alzheimer's has the decency to take you out, kill you. But a wet brain, you can live like that for decades. Now let's see what happens here that's going to change everything. In our minds, let's go to Rhode Island. And now we're in Rhode Island, and we meet up with a man there named Roland Hazard. And Roland Hazard is a wealthy man. He's a wealthy boy, wealthy man. He is part of the Hazard family. And the Hazard family owns a company called Burlington Mills. And if you've ever walked on a carpet in your life, chances are better than good that you've walked on Burlington carpeting. And they also owned a large, large block of stock in a company that is still traded on the New York Stock Exchange today, a little company called Allied Chemical. And these were wealthy people. And their son, Roland, was an alcoholic. And Roland, because money was no object, had himself sequestered on a Caribbean island for one year. And the quartermaster was instructed not to bring him any liquor at all whatsoever. And for the year that he remained on this Caribbean island, he remained bone dry. He goes to Florida after a year from the Caribbean, probably had a nice tan. He goes to Florida, and when he lands in Florida, he's drunk within a very short period of time. Not, not days, hours. He's dead drunk within a very short period of time. Now, there were a couple of things in the 1930s that were in their ascension period. They were in their infancy period. One of them was the art of psychiatry. And we think of psychiatry as being old, and it is not. Psychiatry is relatively new. And the most preeminent psychiatrist in the world at that time was Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud was approached by Roland, Roland seeking relief from his alcoholism through this psychiatry, and Sigmund Freud told Roland that he could not take him on as a patient. So Roland asked Freud, who's the number two man? And Freud says, Adler, points him in the direction 
of Dr. Adler. And Adler wasn't taking on any new patients either. And Adler was asked by uh, Roland, who's the next man up in the totem pole of this psychiatry thing? And Adler says, you're going to have to go to Sweden, or excuse me, Switzerland, not Sweden, Switzerland, and in Switzerland is Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, Jung. And so Roland gets a steamship, and he goes across the pond, and he goes to see Dr. Jung. And for one year, Roland is psychoanalyzed by Jung and worked with by Jung and medicated by Jung, and he's talked to by Jung, and he stays sober for about a year. And in the, in the early spring of 1934, Roland Hazard is released from care by Dr. Jung, and Dr. Jung says to Roland, you're good to go. And Roland goes to Paris, and from Paris, he's going to catch a ship to the United States, and he's going to return home an analyzed, cured, healed, sober man. Now, who does Roland see in Paris? He sees two very good friends of his parents. And Roland's friends, Roland's parents' friends, are so happy to see Roland, and they say, what are you doing here, son? We hear you've been, you've been under the care of a doctor and blah, blah, blah. How's it going? And he explains to them, and they do what any well-intentioned people do. They want to celebrate Roland's sobriety. They want to celebrate Roland's comeuppance. And they do it by ordering a bottle of the best champagne that they have at that particular restaurant. And they crack open a bottle of the bubbly. What could be better? You're in France. Let's have some champagne, right? Makes perfect sense to a non-alcoholic. And Roland is so drunk within a very short period of time, it takes him several days before he can return to Switzerland and he says to Dr. Jung, I think something went wrong. And Jung looks at Roland and he says, my boy, I have misdiagnosed you. You are an alcoholic. You're going to die. I can't help you. There's nothing I can do for you, Roland. You're an alcoholic. You have to understand but at that time, there was nothing to do. There was no AA to send him to. There was no nothing. There was no cure. There was no treatment for this. Nothing. And Roland says to Dr. Jung, please, doctor, is there no hope for me now? Is it odd or is it God? that Roland didn't come under the care of Freud or Adler because Freud and Adler believed that all solution lie within the mind, in, in the cerebral. Jung broke rank with them. He broke rank with them and said to Roland, here and there, there are people that have had vital spiritual experiences, not awakenings, I'll get to that in a minute, 
And from those vital spiritual experiences, they have been altered in their beliefs, their attitudes, and behaviors. And Roland, armed with this one thing of hope, in trying to get this spiritual experience, comes back to the United States, and also in its infancy, is the Oxford Group Movement. Now, the Oxford Group Movement was not concerned with alcoholism at all. They were founded by an American, Frank Buckman, and Frank Buckman was at odds with the Lutheran Church. He had a resentment against the the Lutheran Church. So we are here because of a resentment. Now, if that isn't funny, I don't know what is. But we are here because Frank Buckman had a resentment against the Lutheran Church. He is now in England, and he is at a church near Oxford University, and he is trying to rekindle enthusiasm for Christ, enthusiasm for Christianity that first century Christians had, but he sees is lost on 20th century Christians. Now, there's an interesting word, enthusiasm. Entheos, two Greek words, entheos, from God. And Buckman is in England, and because his group is near Oxford University, they became known as those Oxford groupers, which was really a misnomenclature because they had nothing to do with Oxford University, but that was the name given them, so it stuck. It's stuck. But Buckman will now be sent on a mission to China. And while in China, he will see Christians who have sparked this enthusiasm and thanks from God. And how do they spark this enthusiasm? How do they spark this? They spark it because of altruism. Altruism. Giving of oneself with no expectation of return. See, there's a sick way of doing service. There's a sick way of giving, and there's a healthy way of doing service, and there's a healthy way of giving. And what is the difference? The difference comes to one word, expectation. When I give to you, as I give this morning, I have no expectation of return. If I am giving to you, so you will shower me with attention. If I'm giving to you, so you will act in some way that I want you to act. That is not service. That is manipulation. And there's a difference. And the difference comes from an expectation of return or no, the absence of an expectation of return. And I want to live in the absence of that expectation. Sorry, I caught the allergies again. Okay, now, we have a situation. We have a situation where Buckman is seeing these Chinese Christians enthusiastic for their Christianity. He goes back to England. He starts spreading this. He starts propagating this. People are giving of themselves. They are now giving with enthusiasm. They are now altruistic in their attitudes, and it is making a difference in their life to the better. Now, in New York City, the front man for the Oxford group is a guy by the name of Sam Shoemaker. And Sam Shoemaker is an Episcopalian minister 
and he is there at the cavalry mission in New York. And Roland comes to see him. Roland didn't want to go into the conventional church. He comes to Sam Shoemaker, and he says to Sam Shoemaker, I am a drunk. I'm from Rhode Island. I've just been in Switzerland under the care of Dr. Jung. Will you, can you help me? And Sam Shoemaker introduces him to a guy by the name of Sebra Graves Jr. and a guy by the name of Shep Cornell. Sebra Graves Jr., Shep Cornell, and Roland Hazard are drunks who do not know what the problem is. They do not know what the allergy of the body is. They do not know what the twist of the mind is. They do not know about the mental blank spot. But they're staying sober because they're working a six-step program and they're practicing to the best of their ability the four absolutes. Now, so that we don't get questions during the Q&A, I will tell you what those six steps are. I will tell you what they are, and I will tell you what the, um, what the four absolutes are. The six steps of the Oxford Group program that Roland and Shep and Sebra Graves were practicing are, one, complete deflation. Number two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Three, a moral inventory. Moral means truth. Moral does not mean moral or immoral. It means truth at that time. Number four, confession. Number five, restitution. And number six, working with other people. The four absolutes of the Oxford group, absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute love, and absolute purity. I'll give them again quickly to avoid one of the questions later. Number one, complete deflation. Number two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Number three, moral inventory. Number four, confession. Number five, restitution. Number six, continued work with other people. And in our case, continued work with other alcoholics or compulsive overeaters. And the four absolutes, absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute love, and absolute purity. And Roland is managing to stay sober, and so is Chef Cornell, and so is Sebra Graves Jr. And this is the spring of 1934. Now let's take a break. Let's let Roland and Sebra and Chef uh, take a little nap, and we're going to go to Albany, New York. Everybody there? Albany, New York. There's a family there, and they are a family whose father was the mayor of Albany, who's one of the sons would later be the mayor of Albany. And one of their sons was Edwin or Edward Thatcher. Edwin Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby Thatcher was a drunk. And the, the Thatchers had a home, a summer home, as did the Hazards, as did the Burnhams, Lois Wilson was a Burnham, and they had a summer home in Manchester, Vermont. John Kay, and by the way, if you ever want to practice your prayer or you want to practice your uh, second step, drive in a car with John Kay. It will bring you to new heights of prayer. 
he is a New Yorker. So driving in a car with him, sometimes you're on four wheels, sometimes you're on two, sometimes as few as one, but I tend to close my eyes when I drive with him, so that's fine. That said, John, sorry, but the bottom line is, bottom line is driving with John K will bring your prayer life to a new to a new height. But anyway, Edwin Ebby Thatcher, Edwin Throckmorton Thatcher, to be exact, is a drunk, and he is sent by his family to get the summer home in Manchester ready for their arrival. And he goes out there in the spring of 34, and he's painting a wall, and he's drunk, and a pigeon lands on the gutter. So he does what any alcoholic would do. He goes in and gets his shotgun, and he starts blasting the wall. The neighbors call the police. Of course, the pigeon is unharmed and flies away, and he's blasting away, and the cops come. And they come and they say, what the heck is going on here, Thatcher? You're drunk and you're shooting your gun and the neighbors are getting scared. And they bring him in and they say, stop this. One more outburst from you, we're going to lock you up and send you to Brattleboro. What is Brattleboro? Brattleboro is a city in Vermont, but it is also where the state mental hospital is. And that's what they did with drunks in those days in 1934, they put you in the mental asylum. And he's put on double secret probation. If you've ever seen Animal House, Delta House was put on double secret probation. And that's what they do with Ebby. And he tries to be a good boy, but in August of 1934, late August of 1934, Ebby Thatcher is driving in his car, drunk as a skunk, and he drives right into a woman's house in Manchester, Vermont. And he drives into the house, and he doesn't even show the slightest bit of contrition, doesn't show the slightest bit of anything. He gets out of the car in her kitchen and says, hey, Toots, how about a cup of coffee? She calls the police, and he's brought in, to the East Dorset, Vermont lockup. Now, who do we know that was born in East Dorset, Vermont? That's right, our hero, Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson was born and raised in East Dorset, Vermont, right across from Manchester, Vermont. And he's in the lockup there in late August of 1934. Now, Let's go back to New York. We're going to let Ebby sleep off his drunk up there in East Dorset. We're going to go back to New York, and Roland Hazard and Sebra Graves Jr. are about to make a call on the Hazards in Rhode Island, and they're both sober, and the Hazards are quelling. For those who don't know what quelling is, quelling is rapture beyond belief. It would be like you seeing your daughter becoming president of the United States or something tremendous, winning an Oscar or whatever. You're, you're seeing your child win the Academy Award. That's what they're feeling when they see uh, Roland sober. And they say to Roland and Sieber Graves Jr., um, why don't you guys take a vacation? Go anywhere you want, we'll pay. 
And Sheba Graves Jr. says to his friend Roland, I've come to your family and met them, and I'm so glad I did. I would love to introduce you to my family, and we live in East Dorset, Vermont. Now, who else lives in East Dorset, Vermont? That's right, our hero, Bill Wilson. And who's in the lockup in East Dorset, Vermont? Abby Thatcher. Very good. I, I knew you were paying attention. Very good. Okay, now, Roland Hazard and Sebra Graves Jr. go up to East Dorset, Vermont. And while they're in East Dorset, Vermont, they hear about Abby Thatcher. They knew Abby. They knew of him. And they knew he was an alcoholic. They knew that he had a problem with drinking. Drinkers are like that. They kind of know one another. They go to the same bars. They get thrown into the same lockups, et cetera, et cetera. Well, anyway, they hear about Ebby. And in early September of 1934, Roland Hazard and Sieber Graves Jr. decide that they are going to approach the judge in this case and see if they can't get the judge to release Abby to their care. And they're going to take Abby to the Oxford Group in New York and see if they can help him. Now, the judge just happens to be Sebra Graves Sr. Is it odd or is it God that the judge in the, in the Abby Thatcher situation was Sebra Graves Jr.'s father? They approach the judge. The judge is enthusiastic. He says to Ebby Thatcher, come to my chambers, and here, I'm going to give you two choices. Sign these extradition papers. And these extradition papers state that you will do everything these men tell you to do, or you will be remanded back to Vermont immediately. Forthwith, you will be remanded back to the state of Vermont and you will, be, you will be put in Brattleboro Mental Hospital for an undetermined period of time. But if you do what they say, that's fine. Now, Ebby was not exactly a fireball of enthusiasm. Ebby was not a fireball of enthusiasm, but he takes the deal. It beats Brattleboro. He goes into the Oxford Group in September of 1934. And in September of 1934, he goes in, and from September to October, he is sober one month. From October to November, he is sober two months. And they say to him, now you must go give testimony. He says, what's that? He says, you, they says, you have to go tell somebody what God did for you. And Ebby says, I don't want to go give testimony. And they say, oh, that's okay. You don't have to. You can go to Brattleboro. And he says, you know, I think I'll go give some testimony. And he thinks 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 who can, uh, you can tell I raised a little girl, Winnie the Pooh. Um, he thinks who can he, who can he pass this on to where he won't embarrass himself? And in late November 1934, he decides to pay a call at 182 Clinton Street on his old friend, his old drinking buddy, who could use some churching up, Bill Wilson. Now, Bill Wilson, in 1934 in November, was drinking, triggered the allergy on November 11th. <clears throat> 
November 11, 1934, is Armistice Day, what we would call Veterans Day today. I know of somebody in Colorado, that's their wedding day is an 11-11-11. But they, um, that is Armistice Day, and this guy comes over, Bill was going golfing, and this other guy was going hunting, and the bus broke down, and they became, you know, fast friends. And they're at this, they're at this restaurant slash bar in New York waiting for another bus. And uh, the guy comes over and says, were you fellows in the service? And they says, yes. He gives him some beer. And, and this, Bill had been talking to this guy about his alcoholism for a long time. He drinks the beer. The guy says, after everything you've told me about alcohol, are, are you crazy? And Bill says, yes, I guess I am. Drinks the beer, triggers the allergy, and he's been drunk ever since. Now, this is late November. And Ebby is coming to see him, and Ebby is presenting to him this solution without knowing the problem. Now, what are some of the common problems we have in step two? They can become very visible to us when we look at them through the eyes of Bill Wilson. What are some of the things people struggle with? Well, there's all kinds of injustices in the world. We'll get to that in a second. Oh, people are dying and people kill one another. And if there's a God, why is my mother dead and my brother and my sister and this and that? And there's a very good explanation. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know why people die. I don't know why people have to look up into, at God through tears in their eyes on their knees and say, why my baby? Why my child? Why my mother? Why my father? I don't know. I don't know. But Bill Wilson is going to struggle with this idea of a power greater than himself. Now, if we remember back to the beginning of Bill Wilson's story, and he goes to Winchester Cathedral, and he sees the grave of a man who drank himself to death. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is near forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. The pot is how they drank beer in England in those days. It has nothing to do with marijuana. He's looking at the grave of a man who drank himself to death, and on page 10 of the big book of AA, he's going to recall seeing that. Now, there are many, many reasons not to believe in God, and there are reasons that I had to be angry at God, even though by being angry at him, I am therefore confessing a belief in him. But whether I am an atheist, an agnostic, and there's a difference, an atheist believes that there is no God. An agnostic is not sure. Agnostic, ag means without, gnostic means knowledge, without knowledge. I'm not sure whether there is a God or there is not or I am a believer, I can recover in this program. And how I'm going to recover in this program is to be willing to believe. Be willing to believe. I don't even have to believe. It says, do you believe or are you even willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? 
So we're going to get to the Yiddish word of the day. You may want to make note of this. The Yiddish word of the day is gloiben. Gloiben is a Yiddish word for belief. Don't ask me how to spell it. I don't know how to spell it in English. Gloiben is a word that means belief, faith. It's very important that I be willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. Now on page 11, it says here, the wars which had been fought, the burning, the chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. And that was as true in 1935, 36, excuse me, not 35, 37, 38, 39, when the big book was written, as it's true today, as will be true a thousand and ten thousand years from now. There are things in this world that defy understanding. Cruelties and genocide and hatred and many diseases. And to that again, I don't know. But I can live in spite of it or die because of it. I can live in spite of it or die because of it. Those are my choices. I cannot bear the, 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 the problems of the world on my shoulders. I can't do it, and I don't have explanation. And there are mothers listening now that have lost children. And there are fathers listening now that have lost children, and we've lost parents, and we've lost friends, and we've lost opportunities, and we feel often like our life is not where, we, where it should be, that if there was a God, I would be this fulfilled or that fulfilled. I have to change my conception of that higher power. And as is the title of this presentation, to do that, I must take action. But one of the things that stymied my growth, one of these things that held me in hell, in the food, I was under the bondage of Kit Kats and Almond Joys and Kentucky Fried Chicken. I was, in, I was their slave because I refused for a longer period of time than I care to admit, I refused to change a con my conception of God to a conception that was benevolent to me, that was loving to me, that would hold me in his arms and say, it's going to be okay. I know you're hurting. I know you're hurting. And no matter how involved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And eating or not eating does not make problems go away. It is through perfecting and enlarging my spiritual life through service and self-sacrifice for others. You see, we're going to dispel a lie here, a myth and you're going to hear this in meetings, and you're going to hear it from sponsors, and it's not true. It says, the, here's the lie. Abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception. False. 
Abstinence has to be a given. Please don't get off this phone and say Harlan said we don't have to be abstinent. I didn't say that. I said it has to be a given. But when it becomes the most important thing in my life without exception, I'm not in recovery. I'm dieting with group support. Here's the most important thing in my life without exception. To perfect and enlarge my spiritual life through service and self-sacrifice for others. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. On page 45 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it tells us the, the uh, thesis line of the book. It says the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And if it's the main object of this book, it better be the main object of my life. It better be. It, it better be, excuse me, what I work toward more than anything. <coughs> excuse me, sorry. It better be the focal point of my action of my activity. It better be the first thing I think about and the last thing I think about. Things have happened in recovery to all of us. I have been divorced in recovery. I have a 24-year-old. She's now living in Crown Point, Brooklyn. She hasn't spoken to me in years. She will not speak to me. She thinks I'm a horrible person. It hurts me. She's my only child. I have a grandchild with her that. I don't know, nine months old now, I've never met him. I've had economic upswings and economic downswings. I have been in unrequited love. I have, had, I have been broken up with and rejected in recovery. I have had disappointments in recovery. And for many, many years, this stopped me because I felt like, all right, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, God. How come all these things are not going my way? How come all these things are not happening for me? And again, I had to hear myself say, I don't know. You just keep working your steps. I don't know. You just keep doing the next right thing. Again, I can live in spite of it or die because of it. What are my choices going to be? I had to stop looking for earthly explanations as to how I got the disease or how I ended up here or earthly explanations as to why this person or that person or this group or that group wasn't sticking to my script and I found none. And I had to stop looking for earthly solutions to my disease. There are no earthly this, there are no earthly solutions to my illness. There are absolutely no earthly explanations, and there are no earthly solutions. At the bottom of page 43, it says, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense his defense must come from a higher power. 
And over and over and over and over again, I looked for solutions in money, in girls, in sex, in pets, in houses, in backyards, in business achievements, in God knows what, and I found nothing. And when I took action after action to serve God, and where did that start? It started at a point where for the only time in my life, I wanted to live more than I wanted to die. This is not a dress rehearsal. And if there is a God and this program works, who's going to feel sorry for me? I need people to feel sorry for me. I need people to pity me. I need to feel sorry for me. I need to pity me. If this works and I have a good life, then who's going to feel sorry for me? And I didn't believe in God because he didn't give me what I felt I deserved. He didn't act the way I wanted him to act. And I had to understand that as much as I wanted to die and as much as I should have been dead, I was still alive. You know, in Vision for You, I don't know when you're listening to this on podcast, but if you're listening right now, last week, as we sit here, it is September the 8th, uh, 2019, we, we read a paragraph that starts, logic is great stuff. What does that mean? Logically, we should be dead. We have a disease that is permanent, progressive, and fatal. We are biologically pre-programmed to eat ourselves to death or die in the anorexic state, the bulimic state. And there are many more thousands than we can calculate who have been taken out by this disease, and yet here we are. Now, the willingness and this belief did not come to me and we said that there was a difference between a spiritual awakening and a spiritual experience, the spiritual experience is bang, sudden and profound. And the spiritual awakening is slow in developing of the educational variety. The educational variety means when I go to meetings or I work with people, I learn things, and over time I develop a spiritual awakening. That's what I had. I didn't have a spiritual experience. I had a spiritual awakening. But the willingness didn't come and the belief didn't come until I started taking action after action after action after action that I did not even believe in at the time, but I saw that it was working in others and I figured I had nothing to lose. Life was crashing down on me. The pain of living was too much. And I couldn't die. I couldn't live with the food, and I knew I couldn't live without it. So I figured I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to start taking action after action after action. And by doing that, the belief came. And I had to abandon my old ideas and my old prejudice. Now, many of you live in areas that at some time today, there are going to be people that are going to leave their house, possibly to go to church, possibly to visit friends, 
possibly to go to a football game, whatever that may be. They're going to leave their house for a period of time. But any fool can see someone lives here. Someone lives here and they're going to be back. Maybe there's a dog barking. Maybe when you come there, there's a cat in the window and there's furniture in the home. And it looks like the lawn is trim and the bushes are trimmed. You know by looking at that house that whether there are people home or not, someone lives here. I had to abandon my old ideas. I had to abandon them. No vestiges of life were left in that structure. Think uh, uh, The Grapes of Wrath, if you've seen that great movie, Grapes of Wrath with Henry Fonda. They took everything in that house and put it on the truck. There was nothing left behind. Nothing. Nothing but a shell of a home that somebody was going to come and knock down. I had to abandon my old ideas. They didn't work. I had to abandon my fears and my prejudices and my self-pity. I had to abandon this desire to have someone else take care of me. I had to abandon this desire to be the person that it did not work with so I could be special. I don't want to be special. I just want to be another bozo on the damn bus. I just want to be one of you. I want to be in recovery. So I started taking action after action after action. And there were no earthly explanations and no earthly solutions left behind. Money won't fix it. People's behaviors won't fix it. Life had all kinds of challenges. And again, no matter how evolved my recovery got, I never rose above the level of a human being. And I have to work with other people. And I have to work constantly at this. The only way I'm going to remember any of this is to teach it incessantly to others. And in teaching it to others, I am lucky enough to be able to retain a small amount of that knowledge and maybe pass it on. And in passing it on, I am now doing something that can live forever. Pass this to the newcomer. Pass this to the person who's not a newcomer, who's been sitting in these rooms for years, and they're dying of their untreated addiction. They're dying in the food. And we can say something to them like, it's so good to see you. Is there anything I can do to help? Show them your recovery. Now, all these people that we learn about in the big book, Dr. Bob and Bill and Ebby and Jimmy Burwell and Fitz Mayo and Hank Parkhurst, 
and Roseanne S., who founded OA on 19th of January, 1960, and A.G. Ainsworth, they're all dead and gone. God's got a job for you. He's got a job for me. And Dr. Bob, at the end of his life, he said, let's keep this simple. Let's not rouse it up with complexities that are only of interest to the, to the psychologist. Let's not rouse this up with any complexities. Let's keep it simple. And at the last, this is about love and service. And we all know what love is, and we all know what service is. And let's be on guard for that erring member among us, the tongue. Let's use it judiciously, and let's keep to our minds that no man looks as godly as when he is bending down to help a man get up to the rung on the ladder in which he now stands. We cannot be of maximum service to God and the people about us unless we are abstinent and working a program. Abstinence alone won't do it. We have to keep in mind, for me, I don't know about you, for me, that the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And when I say the word dying, what I mean is abandoning. We abandon these old thoughts, these old ideas, and we abandon them for new ideas and new thoughts, which hopefully will translate into action. Now, you didn't think I was going to get through a special edition without saying this, did you? This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. And step two is one of those two steps, two and ten, that is so underutilized. And where I see people struggling in four and I see people struggling in nine, they're really struggling in two. They are holding on to an idea so much of the time to a God that is adversarial to them, that they're trying to explain away in human earthly terms with wars and diseases and injustices. And again, it comes back to, I have to abandon that. I can live in spite of those things or die because of those things. I have to let them go. They're killing me. I'll be damned if I'm going to let those people that came into the Grabowski home in 1914 and murdered my family kill me too. I'll be damned if I'm going to do that. They are not going to kill me too. I'm not going to eat over them. And I'm not going to eat over any of it if I keep in mind that there is a God and it's not me and there is much in this world that I do not understand. But I am called upon by that God to be of maximum service to God and the people about me, no matter what is going on. In closing, let me say, by dying, I mean abandoning, to our sense of self, by dying to our old ideas of who we thought we were, 
By dying to old images, beliefs, and identities, we will awaken to the eternal. We will step into eternity. By helping the still-suffering person, your work, your mitzvah, which is a good deed, your service, will gain eternal life. And with that, I will close. I will pass. Thank you. Thank you for having me this morning, Leah. Thank you, Harlan, for expanding so beautifully on step two and offering such a thorough presentation of AA history and your personal experience, as always. Thank you for your continued excellence with these presentations. Harlan's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. The share ID for today's presentation, 13,372. That's 13372. And we will transition now to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Ned S. Ned S. Anita D. Anita H. Bev M. Bev M. R. Loretta H. Okay. Marilyn T. Marilyn T. Judith R. Dion R. Leah. Yep, gotcha, Dion. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm missing somebody. I have Ned S. Alita J. Dion R. Judith R. Marilyn T. Was there a Bev? Who am I missing? Loretta H. Um, I think you may have heard Des M. Leah. Okay, there we go. Thank you. And I got you, Loretta. Okay, this is a good Oh, thank you. Thank you. Sure, sure. Okay, let's start off with Ned. Everybody, please mute. We're going to go Ned S., Alita J., Dion R., Des M., Judith R., Marilyn T., and Loretta H. Okay, Ned, your your opportunity to ask a question. Harlan, in your presentation, uh you mentioned that the things beyond your control, there are never answers for them. Some terrible things happen during, uh, while you're recovering or you during your recovery. But you also mentioned that, unless I misunderstood, that the belief in the higher power would solve your problems. Did I get it wrong? No, you got it right. Belief in the higher power will solve my problems because that will also catapult me into action in recovery. I cannot control what other people do, think, or say. I cannot control any of this. But if I keep believing and I keep working my program, then my life gets better. My life what gets better. Define the so problem. It doesn't matter. what You can fill in any problem you want. Joe, Joe picks his nose. Let's just use that. And I think I'd have a great life if Joe would stop picking his nose. Joe is still picking his nose, but I've got over 20 years of recovery. My recovery is not dependent upon someone else's behavior. I hope that answers it.
Thank you, Ned. Thanks, Ned. Alita J. <clears throat> your turn. Did you call on me? This I is Alita. Did. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Leia, for your service, and thank you, uh, Harlan, again, very much for your consistent service, always. Um, I guess you spoke of your daughter. I have a mm-hmm. similar situation with my son, um, and mm-hmm. by all rights, maybe uh, he should never speak to me again, but um, for my parenting uh, when I was in disease. However, he has told me that mm-hmm. it's okay, uh, you're forgiven. But um, for the last six years, we've been alienated, and I've worked the steps on this, but sometimes, mm-hmm. and I realize God has a bigger plan, sometimes I'm inclined to go on a pity party. Can you tell me how you mm-hmm. deal with that situation? Ignore it as best you can. Go on living and go on serving God. My life is not dependent upon who talks to me and who doesn't talk to me. My life is not dependent upon other people, places, and things. My life is dependent upon my enlargement, my perfection in enlarging my, enlarging my spiritual life through service and self-sacrifice for others. My next job is to serve the next person that comes in my path. My, my job is not to worry about who's behaving in a way that I want them to behave and who's behaving in a way I don't want them to behave. My job is to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. The dogs bark, but the caravan continues. Thank you. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Thank, thank Thanks, you. Alita. Thanks, Alita. Dion R., you're up. Yes, hi, good morning. Uh, uh, good morning, uh, uh, Harlan, and thank you for your yes. beautiful, wonderful words of wisdom. I have a thank question you, about Dina. the spiritual experience and the um, spiritual, <clears throat> excuse me, spiritual experience and spiritual awakening. Is it uh-huh. possible that we can have both? Um, I don't know. That's never happened to me, but I, I would assume that it's possible. I would never discount the power of God. I, I never happened to me. I everything came to me rather slowly, um, but I would never say no. I would never say no. Hey, if the Cubs can win the World Series a couple of years ago, anything is possible. Anything is possible. Tell me about it. I hear you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Arla. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Dion. Good to hear your voice. Thank you, Dion. Des M. Star one hey, unmute. Good. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? Hear you well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much for your service, Leah, and thank you, Harlan, for your love and service. Um, so I was struck by um, taking action to learn something different. So Gloivin, Belief, and Danube mm-hmm. really hit me the enough. So I'm wondering, mm-hmm. kind of the last question was about spiritual experience, but um, can you maybe speak to some of your spiritual experiences surrounding, like, you believing and your Danug, like from your higher power, if that makes any sense, kind of like your experience with. I'm sorry. I can't yeah. speak to a spiritual experience. I've never had one. Uh, the only thing I can speak to is a spiritual awakening, which is slow in development and it is of the educational variety for me. I've never had a spiritual experience, but here is what I can tell you. I utilize the step 10 prayer about 300 times a day. How can I best serve thee? Thy will be done. It's short, it's sweet, and it's right to the point. There are people 
that can get me crazy with their behaviors if I allow it. What I need to remember is I am not in control. I am not in control of anybody's share on the line. I'm not in control of who's coming to Newark. I'm not in control of who's coming to the OA birthday. And while we're here, I'm going to plug the convention in Newark, New Jersey. If you're listening to this and you're able to come, please get there. It is going to, I know this has nothing to do with a spiritual awakening and a spiritual experience, but you're going to have a spiritual awakening of the educational variety if you attend this convention. This convention will pop a lot of life into your program. You will come back a changed person. But getting back to, getting back off the commercial, what I want to see also, you're going to be able to put faces to voices and faces to names and things like that. So please come. We're going to have an outrageously good time. Um, I cannot speak to a spiritual experience as I've never had one. But Des, what comes to me very, very easily now, it's almost organic, it's effortless, is this, this doesn't have my name on it. I hear something, I hear an injustice, or I see something in the meeting, or I see something in life. This doesn't have my name on it. I don't have to get involved in this. This doesn't have my name on it. There's a conflict between A and B. Not my, doesn't have my name on it. Does that make sense, Does I don't have to get in the middle of it. It's not about me. It's not about me. And that's new information because everything was about me before. And that's an exhausting way to live. I don't have to punch myself out. I don't have to rope-a-dope myself out trying to solve all the problems of the world. I can just live my life. And that's what I've really learned. I can't control this, and I can't control that, so I'm not even going to try. Because it's not, it's not for me to control. It's not for me to control. So I hope that answers it. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys. Bless you, Harlan. Thank you. Thank you. Des, thank you. Judith R., your turn, star one to unmute. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Harlan, so much. Judith R., gratefully recovered in Brattleboro, Vermont. Harlan, my my question is, did you and John Kay on your magical tour to see Bill's birthplace realize that you had to go through Brattleboro on the way? We did. We absolutely did. And uh, I was screaming in terror. If you've ever driven with John, uh, it's quite an adventure. And I think that John is a very special person. I love him with all my soul. I love him with all my heart. But he was sent here by God to bring me to new vistas of prayer. Uh, He drives on one wheel, two wheels. Uh, I've gotten I've gotten in a car with him where he's gotten a ticket in Los Angeles, so it's it's interesting. It's it's a, it's a vista of terror that I've not quite experienced before. I say it with love, but uh, John's an, an old New Yorker. Yes, we were passing through Brattleboro, and we knew that we were very you know close to history because this is a part of our history. Is the fact that they were going to send him to Brattleboro, and he didn't want that. And then when Roland and um, Sieber Graves Jr. show up, 
he is brought into chambers and he, is, he says, well, you can sign extradition papers or, go, or you, well, I'll remand you to Brattleboro right now. And he didn't want to be remanded to Brattleboro. So he signed the extradition papers. And um, those extradition papers were sold online, sold to somebody, I believe, for $50,000. Sixty, fifty, or $60,000, yeah. The original papers from the court in East Dorset were sold for like, yeah, $50,000, $60,000 online to somebody bought them. Uh, but yeah, we knew we were close to, uh, we knew we were close to it. As a matter of fact, I believe, and, and I wish John, I don't know if he's on. John, if you're on the line and you can confirm this, jump in here. I think we actually had lunch in Brattleboro. I think we actually stopped because we were coming from Boston, Mass. And I believe that when we got to Brattleboro, it was about, uh, I guess he's not on the line. Okay, it uh, doesn't matter. So I believe it was around noon, and we actually lunched in Brattleboro, I believe. So, yeah, we, we knew we were close to history. Yep. yep. Thank you, Judith. Yes, thank you, Judith. Marilyn T., your turn. Star one, unmute. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Harland. Um, this is Marilyn T. Grateful, compulsive over ear in Northern California. Um, Harland, I love you very much. You're very close to my heart. I was with Thank you, you in uh, Tahoe when we sat and talked, and I shared about my son who has passed away a week ago today. But I asked right. you and you told me, what could I do for my son? who is suffering in drug addiction. And you said the only thing I could do was recover, recover, recover. In his memory or when he's alive, is the only thing I can do for him is recover, recover, recover. And thank you for this God thing. It's a God thing you're on the line today. It's a God thing I'm on the line today. It's a God thing we are in this program. It's a God thing we're going to a vision for you conference, we will all be there together. And those mm-hmm. who want to enlarge their spiritual program will go. Those who cannot afford it, hopefully they can listen to it. Thank you, Harlan, from the bottom of my heart. I love you very, very much. I love you too, Marilyn. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing you in Newark at the convention. And please make sure we find each other too, Marilyn. Bless your heart. And I'm very, very sorry about your loss. Very sorry for the loss of your son. Thank you, Harlan. Thank you, Marilyn T. Loretta H., star one to unmute. Good morning, everyone. This is Loretta H., compulsive overeater, anorexic, graced with God's abstinence for today. And I always share that my abstinence is practicing the principles in all my affairs and working the steps. Like, as you always share, Harlan, your hair is on fire. And Mm -hmm. Leah, thank you for your service. And Harlan, thank you always. I get so much out of anything you say. And my question, and I hope this is, I love the history of AA. And I'm just wondering the resources I could find um, and literature I could find. And even I would love a written transcript of this um, share that you had today because 
I love to share it with my fellows I'm working with because to me, like you've always said, it's men of giants and is it odd or is it God that this mm-hmm. book came to fruition because of two drunks working together and helping other people. Mm-hmm. So I just <clears throat> I really want to learn more about this. And if there's any mm-hmm. information I can get from anyone or you about how to present or look at the archives like you do, because to me it's fascinating. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Loretta, for the question. There are many, many books and many, many sources of information, and many of them are conference-approved literature. Uh, there is uh, AA Comes of Age, Pass It On. Pass It On is the uh, uh, AA biography of Bill. There's Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. These are all conference-approved things. I'm not stepping out of, out of conference-approved literature here for AA. Um, there are online sources. There's Pass It On, AA Comes of Age, as Bill sees it, as Lois remembers. Uh, I know I'm speaking fast, but these are some of the places to start. There are biographies of Bill that are not conference approved that you may want to check out as well. I won't enumerate them here because they're outside issues. They're outside of the conference approved, so I will not enumerate them in this context as we're being recorded and I won't do that. But you can look at them yourself. You can find them yourself. There are also many online sources, but I would definitely start with AA Comes of Age, Pass It On, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, as Lois remembers, as Bill sees it, and I would start with those. And there is a wealth of information in those books just alone and then you can get started on some of the other biographies that I say uh, are not conference approved, so they will not be named or enumerated here in this context. Thank you so much. Thank you, because it's no going to help my recovery. And thank you always no. for all the grace you have today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. Yes, thank you. All right, we'll take another group. This will be the final invitation for questions. Star one to unmute to offer your name. Lee H. Lee H. Pam R. Pam R. Donna G. Donna G. Becca R. Becca R. Sharon S. Ann P. Sharon S. Is that Ann P? Ann P. Ann P. Anyone else? Mara. Gotcha. All right. Anyone else? Madam. Gotcha, Matt. Okay, great. This is who I have. Lee H, Pam R, Donna G, Becca R, Shannon F, Sharon F, Ann T, Marzi, and Madam. Everybody mute, please, except for Lee H. Your turn to ask a question, Lee. 
Thank you so much, Leah, and I just am so grateful for this special edition. I got so much out of it. I always do with you, Harlan. Um, I mean, this is, I'm getting ready to put my name out there again to sponsor, I think, for about the third time. Excuse me, I'm kind of nervous. But my question to you is, what did your sponsor do or say that was the most important to you? I, I got kind of a kick out of you saying that, he drives like a lunatic and, and puts your life in his hands when you get in the car. But, I, you know, I guess in lieu of that, what what impacted you the most with your sponsor? It wasn't really with a sponsor that impacted me the most. I, I, I cannot point to anything there, uh, either with John or with people that I had worked with before him that impacted me the most. What impacted me the most was I saw that not only I was wasting the life that I had, but I was wallowing in this disease and that that's not living. And this is not a dress rehearsal. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. When I was a little boy, Most of the people that I knew that were adults, not all of them, but most of them that I knew were from the concentration camps. They were people with tattoos on their left arms, on the outside of their left arm. And they came with thick accents and they came and they would grab my face. I'm doing it to myself. And they would grab my face and they would kiss my face and say, live until you die. Live until you die. And for a long time, what that meant to me was I should eat all the candy that I want to eat because that's my definition of living. And my definition of living changed. And my attitudes changed. And my life changed because for the only time in my life, I allowed God to whisper on that still burning ember in my heart that wanted to live more than die. And it burst into flames. And the more I walked to him, the more he ran to me. Live until you die. Is it ever too late? to do the right thing for yourself that didn't come from a sponsor. It came from people who witnessed death and witnessed humanity at its most horrific, nightmarish low. They had witnessed the greatest crime ever perpetrated against humanity. They were firsthand witnesses to it. And that's where it came from. Is it ever too late to do the right thing for yourself, I had to say to myself. Is my way working? Is my way working? And it was not. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. It's all you get. You want to? Wa- I said to myself, you want to waste it? with M&Ms? You want to waste it with whatever? Go ahead. Why don't we try a different way? Why don't we try something else? Let's see. And if it's that horrible, I can always go back to the food. 
It's been the greatest adventure ever. So, Lee, I hope that answers your question. But I, I learned a lot from those people, men and women, who came out of those death camps and said to me, live until you die. So I hope that answers it. <clears throat> Thank you, Lee H. Pam R., star one to unmute. Good morning, Harlan. My question is about, hey, is about you mentioned the absolutes of the Oxford group and um, Mm -hmm. you mentioned love. And -hmm. recently I was talking to my friend about the steps. But Mm -hmm. right after I was explaining the steps, I also started talking about um, criticizing my husband. (laughs) Mm. She's one of my favorite ears to lend about that. And she Mm -hmm. mentioned love. And she said, mm-hmm. um, perhaps the, the difficulty you have loving your husband starts with love of yourself. Mm-hmm. And she said, where in the steps do you learn to love yourself? Oh, and I just have a question for you. Um, do you love yourself? You mentioned yes. lots of good, yeah, lots I, of times I, I, that I, you loathed. And where yeah. in the step works did you learn to love yourself? There's nowhere in the steps that you don't love to learn yourself, love yourself. In the first three steps, I'm getting right with God. In the next steps, I'm learning to get right with my fellow human being, and I'm getting ready in the last steps to get right with myself. I like myself today because I do self-esteemable activities every single day of my life, and I do not wake up with the poisonous horror, the poisonous nightmare of what I've eaten the day before. I do not go get up with the shame and the guilt and the remorse and the nightmare of who has seen me eating and who has seen me doing what and what's in my garbage can and what's in my house and this and that. So the way I make amends to myself is to work these steps every single day. And what I find is that not only do I get right with God and right with myself, I also get right with my fellow human being. And through acceptance, I can love them even though they're not perfect. There's not one person that I love that's perfect. There's not one thing I love or one concept that I love that's perfect. There's nothing out there that's perfect. Nobody acts just exactly the way I want them to act. See, God didn't make a bunch of robots. God gave people free will. God doesn't doesn't rob stores and, and kill people, and God doesn't do a lot of these things. People do them. God may get the blame, but people do them because people have free will. But I love myself today. I lo- not in a narcissistic way, I hope, not in a narcissistic, ego-driven, crazy way, but I have respect for myself because I do self-esteemable activities and I tell myself the truth. I act in a way toward myself that is palatable, that is good. I don't drag myself through the muck of the food. I don't do those things to myself today, and it changes, 
the way I look at everything. I cannot tell you what all these years have done to me. I can only tell you what to do to achieve them. And that is take the next indicated action. Take the next indicated action. Move beyond the food. Move beyond the abstinence. Move beyond that and start looking for ways to perfect and enlarge your spiritual life through service and self-sacrifice with no expectation of return. And these things will happen for you too, Pam. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Harlan. Beautiful. Thank you, Pam. Thanks for the question, Pam. Donna G., for one to unmute with your question. Hi. Harlan, thank you so much for your service. Can I be heard? Yes. Okay, my 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 phone's not connecting the way it normally does in my car, but um, so I just I just want to really want to thank you, Harlan. You um, recently gave me some um, feedback in um, an eight o'clock meeting Eastern Standard Time. Um, mm-hmm. You gave me some feedback that really uh, uh, just almost made me kind of like fall over with the buckle up. You know, I just I really. Uh, a lot of hope in that message, and um, I just am so appreciative for all the hopeful messages you deliver. And um, so recently, I am a part of um, a lot of spiritual practices, and um, some of them have to do with program, and some don't. And recently, um, in many ways, I've been kind of wrestling with this idea of um, asking my higher power, who I call God, for what I want in life and I, I I have been since being in program I've really been um focusing on the um only asking if it you know um that it that it helps me to do his will. Um and I just I wonder if you have any thoughts or any experience about um anything in program. I mean I, I a lot of people kind of um suggesting to me that you have not I mean I have a lot. I have many, many blessings but um, to, to quote biblical, you know, you have not because you ask not and, you know, ask and you shall receive. And so I'm just, just really grappling with that. Is it, you know, uh, you know, what are your thoughts about that? And does program allow for that anywhere where I should be, you know, uh, again, with self-love, maybe um, I know God takes care of me and I trust that, but should I be asking for what I want? Well, let's go to page 87 and let the big book answer your question. It's, and it's the same thing as page 13. Um, let's go to page 87. It says, we usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. So we're working steps every day here. We're working steps all the time, every day. That we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will, and we are careful to make no requests for ourselves only we may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that, and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. So that should answer it right there. That's his concern. And on page 13 in Bill's story, he says exactly the same thing. And when the big book wants to tell us something, it does not tell it to us once. It tells it to us many times. So that should answer your question. Thanks, Donna. 
Thank you, Harlan. Thanks. Thank you. Becca R., your turn. Star one to unmute with your question. Hey, it's Becca R., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Kentucky. And my question for you is, I really love the analogy of the house that I have departed from for the day versus the house I have abandoned. And I feel like I am at a spot after several years of recovery that, like, I get that. And my question is, how can I save, (laughs) maybe there's the answer, Um, how can I transmit that to other people without years of um, not getting that? (laughs) Do you you have a suggestion You transmit it to other people by doing three things. Write them down. Three things. Recover. Recover and recover. Those are the three things you can do. Show them how this works in your life. Show them how it affects you, and they'll either want it or they won't. But that's how you transmit this. Recover, recover, and recover. Show them. Show them. I hope that answers it. If they're struggling and they want, you know, and and you're talking to them, you can say to them, is there anything I could do to help you? There may be, God may give you opportunities to engage in conversation, but show them. What did St. Francis of Assisi teach us? Preach the gospel. And if you must, use words. I hope that answers it, Becca. Thanks, Becca. Thank you. Sharon F., your turn. Um, Hi, this is Sharon F. Thank you so much, Harlan, for your Mm -hmm. uh, beautiful share and your service. Uh, I think um, one of the previous callers just, uh, you kind of touched on, but I, right now, I mean, this is so such a great um, topic for me. Right now, I'm experiencing so much anger at my higher power. And um, mm-hmm. I, um, for like the past 20 years, I've had a, a health problem that causes a lot of pain. And, um, and it's, you know, I deal with it. But in the past four months, I've gotten two other health problems that pain is the problem of it too. And the combination of all of it and what I'm required to do with physical therapy and stuff like that and just just everything has like hit that that of emotion that I have not been able to to deal with. And um I a week ago had kind of a come to Jesus with my higher power and just said, you know, I, cause I believe that, you know, pain is purposeful. And I believe, I believe that you know, he has caused that maybe for some good purpose, you know, and I, my prayer is always don't waste this pain, somehow make it be useful. Um, and, and I've seen actually time how it's helped, but anyway, I, 
I have reached the <clears> point <throat> that I, I can't, I, I just don't Sharon, want to do this anymore. in the interest yep. of time, if we could come forward with a question, please. Thank you. Oh, sure, yep. sure. So uh, when you're angry, if, I don't know if you get angry with your higher power, but when you're angry with your higher power and mm -hmm. and you just don't know where to go from there and mm -hmm. you just are tired, sick and tired of being sick and tired, but not knowing what to do, what, what, where do you go? How do you do that? Sometimes I have to fire my higher power and get a new one. Uh, my life changes, and sometimes I'm, you're laughing, but that's exactly what I've had to do many, many times. I do not have the same God today that I had 10 years ago, nine years ago when I got divorced. I do not have the same God today that I had nine months ago when I got into uh, a relationship with a young lady. I do not have the same God because as my life changes, I often change higher powers. And that is one of the things that people are very reluctant to do in OA. We are reluctant to get away from a higher power that has never worked for us. And we keep hanging on to that higher power. Sometimes I have to change my higher power. Now, how do I do that? I sit down literally and I write out, what do I want in a higher power? My needs and my wants and my desires are different today than they were nine months ago. They are different today than they were three months ago. They are different today than they were 30 years ago. And so as life changes, sometimes I have to change my concept of a higher power. Now, the God of Israel is a beautiful God. He freed us from Egypt. He liberated us from the camps. He, he split the Red Sea. Great God, wonderful, absolutely fantastic. Wouldn't keep me out of the food for long. I have a new God now. I have a new God. There's a new sheriff in town. I'm not knocking the God of Israel. I'm not knocking the God of the Christians or the God of the Muslims or anybody's God. It's not for me to knock. It's not for me to criticize. And if having a deity of religious origin is what works for you, that's fantastic. It doesn't say in the big book, here's what God should be. It just says it can be of our own choosing. And it says, do I believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? Maybe it's time for Sharon to do some writing and take some action to help other people. And when I say writing, what I mean is, Maybe sit down and write, what do you want in a higher power? And have that be your higher power. And then serve others. And use that pain to propel you into service. Whatever that service is for you, whatever you're capable of doing for the next sick compulsive overeater. And take action. And in taking action, you find that your attitudes and your beliefs will change. And I hope that answers it. I hope that. And even though you're laughing, there is some, something to, to say or there is something to, to think about. Maybe you need a new higher power or a new concept of the old something. Something has to change. But take action. Thanks, Sharon. Thank you. 
And P, star one to unmute with your question, please. Hi, this is Ann P. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. First of all, I want to thank everyone for these meetings and Harlan um, words found me. I, I take notes and I, I don't even, I wasn't sure what I was going to ask except to tell you how much you helped. I have a situation where uh, I had 30 days of entire abstinence and I picked up when my sponsor went on vacation. Um, I got a temporary sponsor and I'm finding that she is holding me to a higher accountability with the food because right now I'm in a food crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am incredibly reticent and fearful of talking to my sponsor that got me started, but I do feel that I need something more. And you were just talking Mm -hmm. about firing a higher power. Mm -hmm. I'm not firing my sponsor, but I, she's helped me so much, but I don't know how to do Mm -hmm. this. I don't know if I should do this. And that part of me wants me to run down parallel paths and not talk to her and still work with this other person. I'm really struggling with this. And this new sponsor told me God will direct me, but I do need to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And uh, my heart is breaking over doing this, but I need help. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have to fire your old sponsor, fire your old sponsor. Do what you need to do to survive. And at the end of the day, it's not about the codependent relationship with another human being or an alanatic relationship with another human being. Because when you're alone in that, in that moment at night, when the lights are out and you're in bed and you review your day, if everything you said today, everywhere you went today, every single thing about your day was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, if you're not proud of it, something has to be changed. And at the end of the day, there's nothing in there about not firing your sponsor. You're going to have to put your big girl pants on, and you're going to have to do what you're going to have to do. And if this other sponsor is not working for you now, and I don't blame the sponsor that you picked up food. Let's, 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 get, a, let's get that right out of the closet here. I'm not going to put the blame that you picked up food on, on another human being. If you picked up food, Something was not there. What step, where are you in the steps, by the way? Obviously, now you're back at step one, obviously. But where were you in the steps at that moment? And And you'll need to start one to unmute to respond. I had um, started step four, and then I had picked up and went back to step one. How long were you on step four? Um, just uh, a couple of days. The first day I worked on it, I picked up. You should be, you should, yeah, you, you didn't have step two down. That's yeah. why you picked up, and you were moving too slowly. How long did it take you to get through the first three steps? She moved me very quickly through them. So. Good, good for her. Good job. But you didn't have a step two down. That's why you picked up. There's nothing to fear in step four. There's nothing to be afraid of. This is this is narishkite. Narishkite is foolishness. Now, this is this is narishkite that we have taken this fourth step and we have we have 
overblown it. We have we have overblown we have overblown it into something that it's not. It's not this big event. It's something that should be done. It should take two, three hours tops, move on and be done. You were afraid of not doing it perfectly. It says fearless and thorough. It does not say perfect. God is not going to hang my fourth step on his refrigerator. Hmm. Not going to happen. Fearless and thorough, not perfect. It's a moral inventory, which means truth. Morality is not part of that. We move through quickly, but where you, where you didn't have it down was in the step we're talking about this morning, step two. And when you move through next time, you move through your fourth step, it should take two, three hours, tops, and keep moving. This is not some grandiose event that's going to change your life forever. Do it, put it down on paper, let's move, let's go. I hope that answers it. But if you need to change sponsors, you go right ahead. There's, that's very normal. There's not a person on this line, dare I say, okay. that hasn't been in that position. Both, from you. both ends of it in a lot of cases. No problem, Ann. Okay. All right, thank you. Next is my friend, Maura. Go on. That's okay. right. Maura Z, your turn with a question. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Maura. Oh, my goodness, my friend. I'm I'm torn between asking two questions. I'm only going to ask one. So here's the ask question. Ask the first one first. Ask the first <laughs> one first, and then we'll get to the second one. What's the first question? Do you do a structured 11th step practice? And if so, what is it? Thank you. My 11th step is what begins my day. The very first thing I do is pages 86, 87, 88. That's number one. I do the St. Francis prayer. I do acceptance. I do not sit on the floor and go, hmm, I'm not knocking people who do. If that's what turns you on, go for it. But that's what I do, and I pray through the day. But my day starts with page 86, 87, 88. It starts with St. Francis. It starts with acceptance. And it starts with prayer, and that's what starts my day. What's the second question? Okay, is there a resentment that you've been holding on to for a very long time that you have to keep redoing 10 steps on? Yes, I hate the Yankees, and I'm not crazy about any of their fans, but you are the only exception to that rule and since you are a Yankee fan, I will make the exception. Yes, there is a resentment that I have. I have two resentments, actually, that are the most difficult for me. The first one being this. I get angry about the fact that I was addicted to food rather than alcohol or drugs. Now, I know that people die from alcoholism and they die from drugs all the time. We just took a question this morning from someone who lost a child from drug addiction. But I happen to be addicted to food. And when you're addicted to food, your body not only changes, but it makes girls disappear. I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years of age. There are things that I'm going through right now 
right now at 65 years of age that I feel in my script I should have been going through when I was in my teens or early 20s, girl-wise. I was emasculated by this disease. I was altered and destroyed physically by this disease. But in my mind, if I were addicted to another substance, I would have had to come into program, which is fine, but I would have had a dating life. I would have had... I would have gone to homecoming. I could have gone to the dance. I could have gone on dates. I could have done things that were more normal than what I had, which was an isolated vacuum, an isolated vacuum. So I often get upset that I wasn't addicted to some other substance other than food. And I also have a bit of difficulty at times, most of the time I don't think about it, at times about the situation with my daughter. Um, holidays are coming. I wish I could have contact with her. I can't. I've tried. I've done everything I can do. And now I have to love and gain. What does love and gain mean? Leave, her, leave them alone. Love and gain means leave them alone. So these are two things that have been nagging over the decades, over the time. Uh, obviously, with my daughter, it's, it's more of a recent thing in the last uh, nine, ten years. But the thing with I wish I was addicted to something else because I, was, I had to have 29 hours of plastic surgery just to be a man, just to be a male. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but trust me, it makes sense to me. Um, I wish that it, it, as a younger guy, I was addicted to something else. So those are the things that I, those are the most difficult resentments, the most difficult regrets that I have are those two things. So yes, no matter how involved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being and more I am terminally human, and I hate the Yankees, and every time they lose a game, another angel gets its wings. And I hope that answers it for you, dear. Thank you. No wings last night. Thank you, Harlan. All right. Madam? Yep. Madam, you're the closer for today. Your question. You're the closer. Thank you. Thank you, Leia, for your service. Thank you, Harlan, for your presentation. I, I got out late, and I really got a lot out of it today. Um, I definitely have a step two issue. I've been struggling with the food for a long time, up and down the scale. Mm -hmm. I kind of relate to your story a lot because I definitely have been emasculated from this disease. It's definitely hard to be considered a male when I have, you know, huge uh, breasts and other things that are going on in my body. But, like, I mm -hmm. do struggle with the concept of a higher power because, the food is winning, and um, I don't want it to win anymore. I, I'm sick and tired mm -hmm. of it. You know what? You know what this feeling is like, being sick and mm -hmm. tired of being sick and tired. I just want to be able to get mm -hmm. a connection to my higher mm -hmm. power to put the, put this down and put it down for good. I'm, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. That's all. Okay. Um, Matt, I say this with all due respect. We've been having this same conversation for years. We, you and I have been having this same ping pong match for years. 
um, I'm hoping that you'll hit a bottom. I'm hoping that, that, that you will slam to a bottom. Um, but if you've hit a bottom, and for the sake of answering a question, I'm going to assume that you're at a bottom, although I'm, I'm skeptical. Um, it's time to do what? It's time to take action. And before we get to step two, we have to do step one. And that means I'm going to have to put the food down for a couple of days and start working the steps and keep it down. And that means I'm going to have to have a food plan. And that means I'm going to have to put the food down. What does Dr. Silkworth tell us three times in the doctor's opinion? Put the food down. There's no part of the big book where it says pick it back up. There's no instruction in this book that says, okay, now you can pick back up, pick up the food again. There's, no, there's nothing like that. Now, I have to believe, Matt, that if you will put the food down and start working the steps and work them quickly, you'll recover. You'll recover. And this is, this is something that you and I have talked about for years, years and years, we have talked about this. Even before Virginia Beach six years ago, or four years ago. Four years ago? Yeah, four years ago. Even before Virginia Beach, we've talked about this. So, yes, step two is vital here. But let's back up the truck to step one. And the problem is not the food. The problem is the buildup of human emotion. Food becomes the solution to the problem. And the only other solution is the spiritual awakening found in these steps. And that's what's going to solve this. There is no earthly solution here. I have to put the food down. I have to keep it down. I have to get a sponsor. I have to work the steps quickly, and I will recover. It's no more complicated than that. And when we need help along the way, we have a sponsor and we have others. And I hope that answers it, Matt, because that's the only answer I've had, and that's the only answer that there is. And with that, I'll pass. I mean, with that, I'll, I hope that I'll pass. I'm used to my daily three minutes here. Uh, with that, I hope it answers it. I'll pass. What is that? All right. Anyway. Thank you, Matt, and everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Harlan, for your generous spirit and help to all of us on the line. We really appreciate everything you give to us here on A Vision for You. And today's share ID number, once again, 13,372. That's 13372. And we're going to close today's presentation. From page 164, you'll notice that it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. 
but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.